On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Max Brown. Max is an author. He's a speaker. He's done 3,000 keynote speeches around the world. He's a consultant to Fortune 500 companies like Southwest Airlines, American Express, 3M, GE. When you look at engagement scores or engagement levels of people and the way they feel about their work, there actually is a huge gap between what managers and leaders think they're doing and how people are experiencing it. And how to close that gap? And it, it really comes down to not just putting nice posters on the wall that talk about what we do, but actually creating systems to support those actions and those words on the wall, right? And that, creating a system is really hard to do because we typically say, well, no, we could never do that. I mean, we, we really do trust everyone, but, uh, and then we have 15 ways that we don't trust them and we, and we, you know, make them sign a paper at the end for why we don't trust them. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founder started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Today on the show, we've got Max Brown. Max is an author. He's a speaker. He's done 3,000 keynote speeches around the world. He's a consultant to Fortune 500 companies like Southwest Airlines, American Express, 3M, GE, uh, and a good friend. Max, thanks for being on the show. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So um, you've done a bunch of different things. Uh, I want to talk about all sorts of things you've learned, but uh, I kind of want to start with your book, Leadership Vertigo. Um, I I found it really interesting and... uh, I feel like you highlighted some things that people kind of know, but you really made it front and center. Um, For starters, tell people what the book's about and why you decided that that was the book to write. Sure. So it's the first book, and and it's been on my mind for a long time. You know, as as you mentioned in my intro, I've spoken to a lot of different companies around the world, and one of the biggest phenomenons you see no matter where you go is everyone thinks that they're different, but oftentimes our our challenges are the same, and and most of it comes down to relationships. And when you think about relationships, it really comes down to the way leaders treat people because they 
uh, they really control how outcomes, they control uh, systems, they control the way people work when they come to work and how they feel about the work in a large way. So when I started thinking about that, I started thinking about and then started talking to people about this phenomenon, why it occurs for so many years and for uh, and, and why it happens despite the fact that we know what we should be doing, what we could be doing. I mean, for 50, 60, 70, 80 years, people have talked about how to get fear out of the workplace or how to create more engagement with their people so that they then their customers will be happier. So this phenomenon has been around for decades, but people talk about it today like it's still brand new. The challenge is, is how do we execute on that knowledge? It's not having the knowledge, it's executing on that knowledge. And so I wrote the book on the, the concept is, is that we all go off course. It, it doesn't matter who we are or where we come from or what our title is. We all go off course. And the question is, is how do you get back on track? And how quickly do you understand that you are off course so that you can get back on track? And so that's why I, I wrote the book. Well, I feel like... Um... In a way, you get to say something that might be hard for leaders to hear, but very valuable for them to hear. Um, yeah, I mean, that's fair. I mean, that's fair. So for leaders who, who think, oh, goodness, here we go again, let me just suggest that there's an opportunity here where we can get back on track in a much more um, a meaningful way. And it doesn't have to just be like memorizing a skill or or trying to figure out another list or a to-do silver bullet points, you know, to getting, you know, X, Y, Z by the end of a quarter. This is about showing up. This is about way of being. This is about aligning my intentions and my motives and my mindset. So you're right. I mean, I do get to say some things, but I hope it's in a way that actually encourages people to listen as opposed to shutting down. And so what I try to bring to light is that, hey, listen, we're all in this together. There's no one out there doing this on their own. And those who point fingers at someone else very likely are experiencing vertigo themselves. So, so you know what I mean? It's, it's not a, it's not a point fingers in order to blame. It's really as a, a, a mea culpa, if you will, to say, holy cow, we're all in this. We, we've got to understand that. And by understanding that we quit demonizing each other and we say, how do we move forward? How do we improve? And how do we make this better? I, I love that. You know, um, I, I do think that you navigated that well because I read it and I just thought about, you know, oh, this failed startup or over here at, at our charity child rescue, like the times, <laughs> the times when I'm guilty of what you're talking about. But it wasn't in a like, I didn't feel like you were pointing the finger at me. I didn't have the temptation to like shut the book, you know, okay. like I did feel like this, like a little bit of the twinge of like, oh, shoot, I've done that. <laughs> yeah. But in a way of the like, kind of like committing, like, I, I want to I make sure I don't do that again kind of way. That's so cool. I think you navigated that well. I appreciate that. I mean, that was definitely a concern because there's a lot of books out there, you know, that try to uh, shame people, I think. And I don't think that's a useful way of moving or creating change at all. So I'm glad you, you felt that. Um, well, listen, uh, we, we've had other authors on the show. A lot of the entrepreneurs and people listening to the show um, might, might be an author or thinking about writing a book themselves. Tell us about the process of, of so, writing for you. What was that like? <laughs> Holy cow. Um, well, you know, there are some that are just really prolific and they can get it out there and do it in, with abundance. And for me, it takes a lot of work. I, I read a lot, I consume a lot, but, um, synthesizing it and putting it together, it takes a lot of work. And of course, it, it, those who do grab the book, they'll see that I have a co-author. So I did find a friend who, after I understood all these concepts and all these, these leadership pieces and all the structures that I had in place, 
um, I found a friend who was very prolific in writing and said, hey, if I share these concepts, how do we how could you help me to put this inform this and make this work together? And so we started that process and over two years of of lots of consulting and lots of writing and back and forth between each other, we produced the, the book. And, and getting a, a bit more granular for you, did you have a specific routine or did you set milestones for yourself or um, was it a little more free form? What was that? Yeah. Like. No, I mean, we, we had to drive it faster because of the book publisher deadlines, and that, that's always helpful, you know. But, um, but uh, and having a routine, you know, and uh, was very helpful. So, you know, as a father, a consultant, a speaker, you've got all this stuff going. When did you, when did you write? Did you write early in the morning? Did you find time during the workday? When did you get it done? No, that was Saturday mornings, like at 6 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So... That was that was in between, you know, traveling and, 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 and being home and trying to be present with my family as well. And and would you just would you carve off a good block or like was it an hour, is it five hours? What would you what would you get done at a time? Yeah, no, I mean that was the routine was to get in those sessions and then we would write, you know, in between or, or around that. But those were our meeting sessions. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um and so from the point that it was done to the point that people could actually read it. What was the what were the logistics or how long did it take to get in people's hands? Well, I mean, it takes a while, right? I mean, you have to get it to a publisher, they have to edit it and a review process and then we get to go back through and review and edit it again. So, you know, like I said, it was a couple of years, but we were probably longer than we had to be. Um, you know, it doesn't take everyone that long. Interesting. Um before we move on, what's some of the fun feedback you've got so far? Any any uh, any things worth note? From, yeah, from I mean, readers? I'm grateful. I'm grateful. You know, the people when they read it, they that they feel like they can do things a little bit differently, and that's the idea. There's no there's no silver bullets. There's no prescriptions here. What it is is it's ideas and questions that provoke us into thinking differently. And when that mindset changes, it allows us to be able to think about how we might do things differently as well. And so it's 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 meant to provoke. It's meant to ask those questions so that people think, gosh, you know, maybe I would look at, at how I treat people differently at work if I had this in my mind or with this lens in mind. You know, I can see that. I feel like um, I do feel like you kind of took the blame out of it where you're talking about, hey, listen, it's a natural tendency when you're in charge to think everybody knows what you mean and they like what you're doing and it's working like you're a human. This is this is going to be a natural thing for you. If you don't intentionally ask the questions, they're not going to get asked by accident. Right. Uh, anyways, I thought that was great. Well, um, let's let's talk for a minute about about your podcast show. You guys did over 150 episodes. You had all these great authors on, and uh, and uh, t tell us about the show. Yeah, no, that was a cool show. Um, I did it again with another colleague of of a couple years ago, but. Great show and uh, learned a lot from that experience. You know, a lot of people are always trying to gain eyeballs and play with social media to try to get more exposure for themselves. And I think that one of the biggest things I've learned is that social media should never be about serving yourself, ironically. It, it really should be about serving others. And the better you serve others out in social media, the more that that will come back to you. And I think that's the single biggest rule of social media that most people get wrong. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so... I mean, you know, like you said, we did a lot of shows. We had about 150 shows, a lot of different guests, not unlike what you're doing now. Um, 
and we interviewed a lot of people, but the ones where we got, you know, thousands of downloads, cause we were getting it, uh, about 40,000 downloads a month of the show and it's still available on, on iTunes, um, that's out there. In, Real recognition radio, right? That's right. Real recognition radio, um, with a lot of different shows, but the coolest shows and the places where we got the best, um, listeners, um, participating or, or wanting to listen to the entire show were specifically when our guests were more abundant. They were more willing to not just think about themselves, but to talk about how how to add value to the community and to the world and not just trying to bring value to themselves. Does that make sense? Mm. And that was a big deal. I mean, it was a really big deal. There were times when I would get on during a break. So we had breaks during the show where I would talk to our guests and say, you know, how do you make this add value for the people who are listening today as opposed to just always promoting yourself? <laughs> Yeah. And those who naturally knew that were just amazing. And those shows would just flow and they flowed really, really well in a way that I, I think that listeners naturally enjoyed listening to those shows as well. It sounds like they were contagious as a result. Oh, it's totally true. Totally true. I mean, some amazing people that come to mind um, that that just flowed because they didn't care that they were out there just sharing with the world what their heart felt and trying to bring it out regardless of what it brought back to them. Mm. Any any guests that come to mind specifically? Oh yeah, for sure. Like Brene Brown, um, you know, she's a famous uh, famous author and speaker that's now on Oprah all the time. But I talked I, I talked and interviewed her before she was on Oprah. But uh, she was just she's just she's a wonderful lady, and we'd have these wonderful conversations about how do we lead in a different way. And of course now you know her name is is just everywhere. But she just comes to mind very, very quickly because of how 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 wonderful she really is. Um, but other other authors like Daniel Pink um, and, a, and a wonderful speaker as well. He he was a great interview. Um, Jim Kuzis, another leadership uh, speaker who's fantastic. Doug Conant, a huge and fantastic leader from Campbell Soup originally, but um, and now is that I, the gentleman who wrote all the thank you notes? He did. He did. Yep. He wrote 30,000 thank you notes during his tenure at uh, Campbell Soup. What a, what, a, uh, what a feat, but also what a service, huh? Oh, man. And when you think of that, if the CEO has time to write 25 to 30 handwritten thank you notes in a day, what does that say to the people underneath that person who don't have time? And so everyone started taking time to say, gosh, maybe we should appreciate the good things that are happening here. And in fact, their engagement levels at Campbell Soup during his tenure completely changed the engagement levels were through the roof. They were retaining their higher performers. People felt more engaged, felt more meaningful at the purpose of their work. And then even their supply chain relationships improved. So he did a lot of things to improve the business and people could feel it. No kidding. Well, um, I don't know if you know this, but our time talking about podcasting and and getting out there and uh, was actually a big influence on the creation of this show. I felt like you kind of blazed a path and made me feel like it was possible. So so thanks for what you did. Well, it's cool, right? I mean, you get to talk to some really cool people and it's it's really, really fun. In my in my mind, that was a big gift in my life, just to be able to speak and listen to um, or to question and listen to these amazing people who really wanted to share just part of their life and what they were thinking. Yeah. Well, um, I feel like, you know, the different the different places you and I have hung out, the different organizations we've been at events at together. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I uh, I think you maybe have a unique focus on, or you you've 
you specialized in more um, has to do with the difference between like stated policies and things that get said versus how people actually get treated. And I've been to things that you've been running and sit at the back of the room and you kind of catch me off guard and I find myself laughing when you're like pointing out incongruities of the like, well, everybody knows it's like this. And then you bring up the like, oh yeah, I guess that is maybe not as awesome as it could be. Um, Talk to me about uh, where do you think this passion came for helping people treat others better? Where do you think that got sparked or, or how do you think it's grown for you? For me personally, and, sure. then, and then maybe more about the concept. Does that work? Both. All right. So I grew up in a big family. My mom had five. My mom and dad had five kids. I'm the oldest of those five, and then they adopted eight more. Whoa. Fostered a hundred kids over a period of twenty years as well. So I come from a big family. So thinking about other people and how to help people is ingrained in the way we grew up. But but you know that that continued in my work life, and it continued in my work life very early on when. When I moved to China for the first few years of my career, um, first five years of my career, rather, I, I, we were doing some retail stores. And we had 21 retail stores up and down the east coast of China. And I would go to these stores and find out that our best sales weren't necessarily in our best locations. Rather, our best sales were where our people were best managed, where they were best treated. And that was a big aha for me. So when I came home, I went to graduate school and started studying organizational learning and leadership coaching and you know, organizational behavior, these type of things to say, why does this matter? Why is this so important? And intuitively, we always knew that was important. And most of us do as we as we think about these things. But how to execute on that is different. And that's why I think it's so hard for people. And so when you come to the concept, and like, you know, you mentioned, I would I poke holes sometimes at the way we, we talk, but the way we deliver is there's a huge gap. And when you look at engagement scores or engagement levels of people and the way they feel about their work, they're actually is a huge gap between what managers and leaders think they're doing and how people are experiencing it and how to close that gap. And it it really comes down to not just putting nice posters on the wall that talk about what we do, but actually creating systems that support those actions and those words on the wall. Right. And that creating a system is really hard to do because we typically say, well, no, we could never do that. I mean, we, we really do trust everyone, but uh, and then we have 15 ways that we don't trust them and we, and we, you know, make them sign a paper at the end for why we don't trust them. Now, not every company's like that. And, and I understand, you know, there's a lot of regulations in a lot of different industries where we have to be compliant around certain measures. And I get that. But are there ways that we could communicate trust in a more meaningful way? Are there ways that we could communicate that we really do care about our people in a more sincere way? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. The problem is, is that most of us just haven't gone that far to be able to put it into our systems. You know, um, it's interesting that you describe it as systems, not as an event or that, you know, that thing you do once a year or something like that. Um, Listen, I think any of us who have spent any time in corporate America uh, or or government bureaucracy or anything like that probably have a a laundry list of, of examples we can point out in our own lives when it's done wrong. But um, do you have any heroes or, or just examples of people that you got to see doing it right in person that had a last impact, lasting impact on you, maybe some of your clients or someone? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and we talked about one of them. I mean, Doug Conant's a wonderful example. And he wrote uh, a book called Touch Points afterwards after his experience as a CEO there and the successful climb and engaging people the way he did. But he submits that we get interrupted every 11 minutes in our workday. And during those 11 or during that interruption is how we define our leadership. And that, that will define 
how people feel about us is how we act during those 30 seconds to three or four minutes of interruption time. And I think about that, and I think that's a wonderful example. I think about uh, Billy Taylor, who at Goodyear Tire completely changed a workforce who felt depleted, actually, because he really out, went out there and trusted people on the front line who were producing and, and, and manufacturing tires at Goodyear Tire. Um, he completely changed the way people feel uh, about their work. And that's an amazing accomplishment considering that he did it within six months and, and brought cost of uh, cost per tire down, but he also increased revenue. And it wasn't by additional investment, but actually, or at least additional, you know, investment of capital other than the way he treated his people and the way he talked about uh, and talked with them. You know, those stories are interesting. It, it kind of sounds a little bit echoing what you're talking about on the, the retail experience in China. Yeah. You know, you hear the cliches about, you know, anything in the real estate business is location, location, location. Yeah. Um, and it, it almost feels like we like technical answers or we like logistical answers. And as a culture, we kind of shy away from anything that somebody might confuse my caring about people with weakness or something. Yeah. Do you see that? Well, we do that a lot, right? Because it's very uncomfortable. And oftentimes we can look at the data and the science and it's more comfortable because it's on paper, it's tangible, it's easy to understand. People are harder to understand. And, and even when we do try to work with people, oftentimes it can become very frustrating or confusing. It's just not, it's not a perfect or easy thing to work with people, right? So when we think about system design, it has to incorporate the human element into it. Unfortunately, we usually use our rational mind or assume a perfect world when putting a design together, not thinking about how people might respond or react within it. In fact, one of the litmus tests I would suggest people could use is right now, when you think about the systems you currently have in place in your organization, are there any workarounds occurring in those systems? And if there are workarounds, why are they occurring? And if there are workarounds, consider the fact that you probably also have firefighting, heroic efforts, and people staying really late at night in order to make it happen. Now, that isn't always the case, but if that is the case in any in any time, you got to consider what's happening there that people are creating these workarounds and that the system isn't working for them, but they're trying to work for the system. Mm. You know, what? What? that's that's really interesting. What are other, like, you know, you've, you've consulted all over the world. You, you work big companies, small companies. Uh, what are a couple of the other, like, right off the bat, you know, here's here's a very common thing that I see that that's fixable, but that that I see over and over. Well, number one is that people often don't feel like they're very valued or appreciated at work. Uh, that's just number one. Every time it doesn't matter where you go. And leaders will often say that they feel like they're doing good at recognition or appreciation. They might even have a very robust recognition program. But the execution of that, it, it can be tricky. And to be honest, a lot of people actually would just just wish that their their boss or supervisor would simply acknowledge them for a job well done above all else and just show that they care was one of the number one answers when Gallup asked uh, leaders world or people worldwide what it would take to follow a leader. And the number one answer was just show me that you care. Just show me that you care. It, it sounds so simple. Yeah. Why do you think so few people reach the potential of doing that? You know, it's an interesting question, and we came up in an, indust an industrial revolution that taught us how to treat people like machines, and so we think about efficiency gains, or we think about lean, but lean and mean is actually not very good at all, you know, and a lot of people that have ever tried lean, actually, 
have actually felt abused by it, perhaps, because they didn't understand the why behind it. And really, the intentions even behind Lean, for instance, were designed around respect for humanity. And it's really hard to execute that. So we focus more on, you know, how do we reduce tack time or how do we reduce some waste over here? But we forget that really the motive and the, and the purpose behind all that is to make the job more meaningful and better for the people doing the work. And that if they find that their work is more meaningful and better and that the work is improved, it's easier to do or better to do. The quality improves. The tack times are better. Their response to customers increases. All these things are better. But we often focus more on the tactical things than we do on treating people better. And that's an interesting phenomenon. You know, it's interesting you bring that up. I'm thinking about some of the organizations you introduced me to you know, in the operational excellence and, and lean methodology worlds. And um, I almost feel like it's like the more junior that people were on that path, the more likely they were to be tactical and and logistical. And like the more of a Jedi they were, the more human they were, like the more they were tapped into the what the experience was like for everyone on the line, not just the like logistics of the line. Yeah, no, and to be fair, um, there is a maturity continuum to this. You almost have to go through those first few steps in order to understand why those other steps later down the road are so important. You know, I used to work with Ritsuo Shingo a lot and, and still work with the Shingo Institute on a regular basis. And, and Ritsuo Shingo, his father was the founder of, of that institute, but Ritsuo Shingo was a CEO of Toyota Motor Company at several different plants. And, when we'd go on the Gemba or out in the workplace with him, he would just simply watch people. And he wasn't watching for compliance or for audits or for gotcha moments. He was watching to say, what have we done or what are we missing to make that job more meaningful or better for the people doing the job? And that's a different mindset. That's a very different mindset than just going out to you know play gotcha games or compliance games based on a rule or a process that we put in place. He would challenge the process and say, well, does the process that we currently have actually help this person make the job or do it better. And if it doesn't, why have we put it in place that way? Hmm. You know, it, it's, that's so interesting that you describe it as a mindset. You know, I, on that week in Japan where he was, where I, I was over there with him, mm -hmm. I think about his stories of that time, you know, running Toyota in Japan and, or sorry, running Toyota in China and like really him setting the example of what's this like for everyone else, what I'm doing, where he like, He's a president of the company for the whole country, and he moves his desk in to the same office with his vice president to share an office. And yeah. like he's going off and visiting those dealerships, and they're trying to put him in the five-star hotel while they all go to a two-star hotel, and he just won't let them. He just cancels the he cancels the reservation and goes and stays where they're staying. Yeah. And uh, it was it wasn't a like I didn't get the feeling of like oh look at me I'm sacrificing for the business. I got the like the sense of like he was really dialed into what is the effect of my decisions? What am I, what am I showing everyone? What am I teaching to people? How am I relating to them with what I privileges I choose to take or not take? Absolutely. It's a, it's a different mindset and it's a philosophy. It's a way of being right. He, he would go out and spend, he, he suggests that you need to spend at least 50% of your time where the work is happening. And he was always trying to get out of his office and never be caught in there for too long so that he could actually spend a, an inordinate amount of time where the work is happening. Now that also suggests, you know, it's not just the front line, it's it's being with customers or at a dealership or working with some salespeople or, you know, different different groups that he would meet with, but all in terms of adding value to the customer. 
you know, it's interesting. I, I often ask a question to audiences in our in the keynotes to say, how much of your time is spent creating value for the customer and how much of your time is actually spent just covering your backside? <laughs> you know, how, how much time do you spend just covering your backside in a day versus creating value for the customer? And that'd be a pretty scary number to some people, I think. Yeah. You know, let, let's let's talk about keynotes for a minute. You, I mean, you've done so many. What yeah. what has been the evolution or what do you feel like now that you've done 3000 keynotes? What do you feel like you learned in that process of doing that many? Oh man, now 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 we're switching gears to 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 speaking and the and the the pulling the curtains back if you will and talking <laughs> about so I think the main thing is, is it's just like the audience you have in those podcasts or the, or the guests that we'd have on our on our shows. Yeah. The people who are abundant and are trying to create value and add value for the audience are the ones who are actually able to move people. And those who are more worried about what they're like or how they're showing up or what people are thinking about them, when you start thinking about yourself on stage, you actually reduce your capacity for being able to communicate, at least in an effective way that touches hearts. So how are you adding value to those who are listening is really key. So for you, what's what's an example of that? What's the, like what's an example of how you add value? Well, I mean, what I'm thinking about is how do I share a story that would be meaningful for this audience that would also be able to provoke or create a different way of thinking? Uh, so I'm always trying to figure out what can I do, and I, so that's why I talk to people or I meet with them far in advance of the uh, to prepare for. Uh, the keynote and I can understand a little bit about what their pain points are and what they're thinking and why they're thinking that way so that I'm actually speaking with them actually as opposed to to them which I think is a big distinction so while I'm doing a lot of the speaking uh, I'm tapping into mindsets that are out there in the audience as opposed to just thinking about how everything in a pristine and perfect world that I don't have to deal with in their world uh, should work right which doesn't make sense because there's a lot of patronizing uh, comments that come from a stage if you're not careful about how you speak with people. That's great advice. You know, I think um, a lot of people recognize that public speaking skills, um, you know, that they scale across all sorts of other platforms and that if you can get good at public speaking, it will help with leadership and sales and all sorts of different parts of business. And there's people who are interested in speaking and so often the advice that people get is just speak more, right? And yeah. that, that's great, you know, more stage time. But I think what you just brought up about meeting with people significantly in advance and and like spending real time understanding their concerns and, and their what they're going through uh, is a huge advantage. Any other nuggets, any other advice for someone who's wanting to become a better speaker that you think maybe isn't just the average advice they get all the time? Well, ironically, I think that people who want to be a better speaker in addition to what you said about getting more speaking time, they need to be better listeners. Hmm. You have to be a better listener if you want to be a good speaker. You just do. And those who are arrogant or, you know, they speak from the stage and then they come off and they're just, they come across very arrogant. I think that they reduce their ability to be able to not only connect with people, but also in order to learn and to be able to continue to add value in the future. So for me, when I, when I come off a stage, I'm really anxious to be able to listen, to be able to shake hands, and then to listen to understand. And then today, for instance, prior to getting on, on this show today, I, um, I was with a, or talking to a client, uh, 
and just talking about what are their needs for 2016. And we're looking at all kinds of different programs and, and ways that we can think about how to add value. And one of the ways I ask them to do that is by sharing a couple of the stories, share me, share with me some of the pain points that they're thinking about and then how we might be able to think of how to address those things, not just from a, a what to say standpoint, but what can we do to back it up standpoint as well. Hmm. But if you want to be a good speaker, you should listen more. It's interesting. You know, it almost feels like counterintuitive advice, but I can see um, how much it would inform what you speak about, right? For sure. I mean, how many times have you been to a conference where you heard a speaker who you could kind of get the you get the feeling that that person hasn't even heard anything else that's happened or has is kind of out of touch with what's really going on either in the news or in the audience because they didn't take the time to understand what else is happening or they they feel like their message is brand new when we know it's several years old kind of thing because they haven't stayed in touch with what's going on. Sure. Well, um, one of the things I, I've asked a number of our guests is, um, especially for entrepreneurs, certainly for, for speakers, um, there are times, you know, if you think about being on a teeter-totter of the, uh, it seems like it almost at any given point, we could probably use either a little more confidence or a little more humility. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking about, you know, um, I've been on stage and had a whole room full of people, you know, ready to listen to me. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you talk about what a disadvantage it is to be arrogant on stage. Um, do you have any tricks or any things you tell yourself or, or routines to help yourself of like when you recognize, oh, man, maybe I need to get the teeter-totter more flat, <laughs> you know, uh, so, you need the yeah. humility? Yeah, no, let me talk about that for a minute because there's a really good book on this. Um, gosh, the name is ex escaping me for the moment, but uh, two authors who wrote a book called Egonomics. Mm. really cool book. And I interviewed him for the show. I know one guy's name was Steve. I forgot the last, the other guy's we'll look name. It up. We'll put the Amazon link on your page on ideation collective. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for doing that because these guys are really cool and, and they're really good people. But one of the things that I, I talk about from that I learned from them was listen, arrogance is on one side of a spectrum. So if you drew a horizontal line and on the right side, you put arrogance and on the left side, the far left side, you put no confidence Humility is actually the equilibrium between the two. Mm. So I think some people get confused. They think that humility, they think humility means no confidence. They think humility is weakness. And that's absolutely not true. Uh, humility actually is this beautiful balance of confidence, knowing who you are, but also knowing that you're not all that, that there's also value around you and that you can see that value around you as well. Hmm. So that's really important. Um, and so when I'm talking or when I'm getting prepared to talk and, and to present, as I'm, as I'm listening to people introduce me oftentimes, um, not only physically am I, am I get on the balls of my feet so that I can actually ground myself. So I get that energy going and I think about where I can and how to be present. But I try to shut out everything else around me so that I'm just very present with this audience today. And what I'm thinking about is how grateful I am that I get to be there. And that I'm grateful that I get to share a message and that I'm grateful that I prepared that I could be able to share this message with someone today. And then I lead, I lead with questions because I don't think, um, I don't think it's right to go out there with just a prescription, but that's just me uh, of things that only I think could work because there's so many people out there in the world who have been successful in so many different ways. 
and then they, you know, the, have you ever seen those folks, you know, that they, they become successful in their one way. So they say, this is the only way you can ever get rich, but that's not true, right? There's lots of different ways to be successful. <laughs> and even success doesn't necessarily have to be defined by monetary means either, right? So I would rather go out there and say, hey, how do we patch into this? How do we make this meaningful? How do we add value so that people feel like I can do better today as a result of hearing some of those things, not because of what Max said, but because of what it does for me inside of me. Well, it sounds like, uh, I mean, just as you're saying it, I mean, it makes so much sense on, on why that would be a magnetic way to go about things. Um, well, thinking, uh, shifting gears again, you know, uh, I kind of have this theory that like business can be broken down into have something awesome, figure out how to attract people to want it from you and not have the human systems break down to deliver those, you know, around both those things. Right. Um, and uh, when you think about um, your work being a consultant, there's a lot of people that would like to have the the 3Ms and the GEs of the world as their clients. Um what do you think it is about the way you've gone about things that you've been able to get um, clients like that? Oh, man, that's a good question. <laughs> I think, you know, I'm not very good actually at marketing myself. And so I, I don't know that I'm the right person to offer this advice at all. I, I think the first focus is simply to just say, how do we add value and how do we do it in a very grounded, meaningful way? So that's that's been my way of being and and. Yeah. It's been more the word of mouth of the one yeah, satisfied customer has been able to. That's right. And then they share it with someone else and they share it with someone else and it kind of spreads. And I've been very grateful that I get to do that. So I have a lot of clients that come back and that's very nice. Well, um, two, two things that you brought up, actually, there's a McKinsey study out there that talks about how um, someone is when it comes to recommendations and purchasing that if they receive a cold recommendation versus a recommendation from someone they trust, right. that the numbers show it they're 50 times more likely to purchase five zero yeah. from when the recommendation comes from someone they trust. So no wonder that works for you. And then the other one is, um, that, uh, a customer, a previous customer is seven times more likely to purchase from you than someone who hasn't purchased from you in the past. Yeah, it's nice. So it sounds like those things are both going in your favor. Well, um, it makes sense though, doesn't it? I mean, if, you, if you're trying to do the right things and you're not hard to work with, uh, people want to work with people that aren't hard to work with. And I, so I, I really try hard to be someone that's very easy to work with. And even when they ask me you know, to, to spend extra time with them, I really try to do that. And I, I haven't always had time to do that, but I've really tried to be very selective about who I work with so that I can spend quality time with each of the clients that I do work with. Um, in addition to quality time, are there any other tactical examples of that, of, of, uh, of, of how you make yourself easy to work with? Golly. Um, response time on emails. Is it, what is it? Well, you know, response time on email is tough. I, I try to do that, but it is hard. And, uh, no, I it's okay if it's not that it, I'm just, no, I wouldn't profess to be very uh, the best at that. I try to be better at it all the time. Uh, but because of the influx of emails and travel schedules, sometimes it gets hard to get back to people because I've got them you know, piling yeah. up. But I know there are some people who do that much better than I do. Is it just how present you are with them when you're with them? What, what would be? No, I think that's a big component of it. And 
being willing to just listen, right? So uh, I just don't think there's that many people. Well, I, w- I wouldn't say that. I would say that uh, there are some people out there that are not comfortable out there listening or, or trying to figure out some of the smaller or the, the, the stories that maybe I get really curious about. So I was in Ireland uh, working with a with a shop floor and this young lady was kind of standing over in the corner and I went over and started speaking with her and her her colleague kind of nudged her and said, come on now, show him, you know, show him what you've done. And and she showed me how she had created this new way of manufacturing on the line that saved them hundreds of thousands of euros a year because of one little idea that she had brought up. And I thought, gosh, what if I wouldn't have went over and just had this conversation? I would have never known that. And it would have been very easy to just walk that floor without having that conversation if I would have just stayed by, you know, the the shop manager, the the general manager, and 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 just walked around, but not ask those questions. I would have missed that. And those are the little things that I try to capture because I think that's the essential part of what we should be doing is listening better uh, to those stories that we'd often miss. You know, I actually feel like that's a bit of a theme that you've been touching on as we've been talking. I think about myself. The some of the people who have the who have had the biggest influence on me have been the ones who have listened to me so fully. Yeah. And very often they are these like kind of like self-forgetful people yeah. there. And many times they're quite, they're very accomplished, but they're, they're like not in it for them. And uh, it almost seems like that leads to curiosity. Like it helps them be curious. And uh, think about like leaving those, um, leaving those times when you've been so fully listened to it, like, it's like a life restoring it is, <laughs> filling right? kind of thing, isn't it? Well, it is. And it, you know, being present with someone is one of the biggest gifts we can give someone. I mean, that really is one of the biggest gifts you can give someone is just simply being present with them. And I'll never forget the day that my own daughter, you know, told me that I should put my phone away. And now I can't do that all the time because yeah. I do have work to do, right? I do have work to do just like all of us. But this day was different because I had promised her that I would put it away and that I would actually just play with her and her brother that day. And instead, I started doing work. And she was about four years old at the time. And she's like, Daddy, would you please put that away? And she asked me three times, finally sitting in my lap, you know, trying to get me to put it away. I finally put it away. And she goes, Dad, thanks for listening. (laughs) Never forget that. I'll never forget that. And being, being present is really one of the best gifts we could ever give another individual, another human being. And it's one of the things that we don't get a lot of. So when you do do it, like you said, these people become really important in your life. You know, I was yeah. talking to an executive the other day who pulled a note out of his wallet. And this little note, it was just a little card. And on the back of this little card, it had, I just want you to know that you matter. And it was from his fourth grade teacher, 1963. What? Yeah. And he had it in his wallet. I just want you to know that you matter. It's amazing how much, I mean, both you and I have, you know, done these things with corporations that have enormous budgets to help with employee engagement and, you know, customer, customer interaction, you know, and stuff like this and how things like that, that aren't expensive often run circles around the expensive things, isn't it? 
it's very possible, right? And I'm not saying that we can't do those things with a monetary value as well, but sometimes I think we do make it far too complicated or far or more complicated than it has to be at least. And those little things do matter. They matter a lot. And I know a lot of people say, well, I don't have time to do that. And, and I only push back to say, you know, how did Ritsuo Shingo, who was one of the uh, most successful CEOs, I would say, and president of, you know, Toyota China, how did he have time to spend 50% of his time where the work was happening? He he just made it happen. That was his priority. You know, I think about uh, one of my mentors, Van Zeck, um, from the, uh, he was the bureau chief for the Bureau of Public Debt for uh -huh. the Treasury, you know, guys in charge of $16 trillion, right? Yeah. And I remember him talking to me about designing his work and how he rearranged the bureau so that he wouldn't be a victim. He calls it the tyranny of the to-dos list. Ah. And, uh, Anyways, as you're saying that, I just I'm hearing Van in my ear. Oh, that's uh, interesting. Yeah. So well, that's that's part of system design, though, isn't it? Because there are some things we do have to do. We all have lists of things that we don't want to do necessarily. They're not our favorite things to do during a day, but have to be done. The question is, is what percent of our of our time do those consume, and how do they prevent us from doing those added value pieces that we really often take much more pleasure in doing as well? So how do we arrange and find time for doing those things that help create value? Yeah, and it was like, he to me, he's like a, a master of, of self-restraint or self-discipline mm. because he, he's a very intelligent, capable man, but he didn't like succumb to the hero mentality, firefighter, you know, here the boss is to fix it all kind of thing. And as a result, he did have enough time to be with the people. Right. Hmm. Anything else to say about that? Well, I'm thinking of $16 trillion of debt, and I'm thinking I wouldn't want to be that guy. <laughs> you know, it's fascinating, right? Because for something that's so politically charged, I, I, have, I have strong opinions about that. I'm a, you know, I'm a Warren Buffett follower, and <laughs> debt to be used sparingly, if at all. Uh -huh. um, and yet he, you know, he didn't get a set policy he was just the guy in charge of making sure it was done most correctly. No, for sure. Yeah. And uh, he, he was the administrator for that. Yeah, he, they were at the time, he, they were the 26th rated 26th place to work in the U.S. government. And, and over those eight years, they climbed up to the fourth best place to work in the U.S. government out of 350 mm -hmm. organizations, you know? Yeah, it's cool. And uh, even with all the pressure. But, well, listen, I'd like to ask guests um, – on this idea of attracting people and, or, you know, we were talking about attracting clients with, with our charity, with child rescue, um, do you have any advice for us on how we might be able to get the word out more about helping people, uh, rescue kids from child trafficking? Well, as you know, this is something that I care about deeply as well. And so I think that was one of the first conversations you and I ever had was about this topic. And, uh, I feel deeply about this as well. One of the things that gets me more motivated and when I think about what engages me or gets me involved is when I understand stories. And as we all know, stories are a very powerful way of communicating messages. And oftentimes and unfortunately, when we share statistics with people, not only are they overwhelming and we need them. I'm not saying that they're not important, but they almost get overwhelming and we almost we almost just take them out of our mind. But when you focus on one individual, one person, one human being, it actually changes the way we feel. And oftentimes we feel like, okay, now there's something I can do about that. I can do something about that one person. 
I can't do anything or everything for the millions of people suffering today, but I could do something for that one person, and that motivates me to try. Mm. You know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking we're, we're trying to get some film crew down to this uh, aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. We're trying to expand um, to go film and help you know help the kids feel more real when we come do the the fundraising campaign this year. But just as you were saying that, I thought, you know, maybe it shouldn't be about the orphanage, maybe it should just be a series of stories of the individuals in the orphanage, you know? Yeah, it's 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 a careful dance, right? Because these are these are these kids have come from a really tough situation. And playing or recording their stories has to be done very carefully. Yeah, it's a super valid point, and, and there's certainly individuals involved in this cause that almost re-exploit the kids or reignite yes. the PTSD, right? Yes. And I'm, I'm thinking about one girl specifically who, now that she's graduated from the program, um, she, she was we were able, you know, the groups that we work with were able to fund her going to post-secondary school to become a baker. Uh-huh. And she's decided rather than to go get a professional baking job, she's just going to stay at the orphanage and teach all the other kids that skill set. And uh, it's kind of an inspiration. I just am thinking, you know, it might be a great story to profile. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's that's the key, right, is understanding what are those stories that you can tell that help help motivate and help people understand. You know, um, I I was in India once speaking and after my presentation, I had some time and I have a friend who regularly goes out to a, uh, a camp much or not unlike what you're describing here, where they teach skills to young girls who have been caught up in the slave trade and they've taken them out of that trade and they've created this compound, if you will, where they teach them new skills, like you said, baking or sewing, or some of them they're even teaching some computer skills, depending on the situation. And I went out there to this place and we got to help in distributing food and, and just listening to some of the stories I was grateful to be there and I witnessed some of the most amazing smiles and people mm. who, who just radiated this love, you know, that you, you just can't imagine like the things that these kids have gone through and how unfair some things really are, how evil some people really are in this world. The thing that struck me some almost to my core was when they would hang on to like we would give them a, a, a can or a cup or a bottle and that afterwards they would want to hang on to it because that was – now a treasured possession that someone had given them as opposed to just a piece of trash. You know what I mean? Hmm. And, but learning those skills and, and teaching these girls how to have these skills was, it was a profound experience for me and I'll never forget it. I'll never forget being there and I'll never forget. They, they actually um, asked me if I wanted to just share a message and I was, I was, I didn't even know what to say really. Actually, I was so humbled to just be among them and, they sang a song to me, and it it profoundly impacted the way I feel and the way I feel about how we treat each other. And it didn't, you know, it didn't change my world. It it just reinforced a world that I already believe that we have to be able to help people in a very very meaningful way. We can't just allow these statistics out there to make us numb to what's really happening. And so I, I encourage you know to, when you do go get those stories to think about how you can. Be mindful of sharing that story, but you know, like you, like you mentioned eloquently as well, but just not exploiting the person who's been through so much already. 
Yeah, you know, um, I'm just thinking about my parents and, and uh, some members of our board who have been down and to meet the kids in person and other places that I've been. Yes. And uh, that there's something personal there. You know, we're actually going to be organizing some trips so more donors can come meet the kids in person and let them know, hey, there's there's people countries away that love you too kind of thing. Right. Um, well, thanks for sharing that. Um, you know, before before we close off here, uh, we're always asking for book recommendations. I feel like we've got some great ones so far. Are there any others you'd want to put on the list? Yeah, for sure. A favorite of mine right now is Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull, <laughs> CEO of Pixar, right? I'm literally halfway through it right now. And Isn't that I'm loving a great it. You enjoying it? Yeah. It's a great read. So enthusiastic, right? Totally. Totally. And, and really thinks about things in a very meaningful way, which I really love. Um, another one that I really enjoy is The Happiness Advantage by Sean Aker. Mm-hmm. Great read and also full of really good substance, which is a lot of fun. Uh, Simon Sinek's book on Leaders Eat Last, I think, is a really great book. Um, and there's a lot of good reasoning behind why he writes the way he does, which is very helpful. Um, and I mean, there's so many good books out there, but um, those are a few that come to mind right now. Those are great. Those are great. Well, you've been so generous with your time. Um, any just other advice you would have, whether it be for entrepreneurs or, or for aspiring speakers out there? Yeah, I, w- I would say that you. we talked about it earlier, but listening listening is going to be key. I think trying to offer and add value is also significant. So how do you bring your voice to something that's maybe already out there? And then when you come up with your concepts or you're thinking about how this might add value, test it. Test it against what really is out there and go listen to other people and what they're saying to calibrate and to make sure that what you're saying is actually accurate and that it's not doing harm. You know, I think I think just like doctors who say they, you know, their 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 call to action is that they can do no harm or to try not to do harm to their patients. And I think not unlike them, speakers and consultants should take a similar pledge <laughs> to do no harm. And I think that that's really important uh, so that we're actually adding value and making meaning. Now, a lot of people say, well, gosh, that's easy to say once you already have paying clients. And but I would submit that. There are a lot of people out there that if you really want to build in this business, you, you do need to go speak often, but you don't worry about where it's coming from in terms of payroll at the time. If you need to work full time doing something else for a while while you speak on the side, that's a perfectly good way to do it. Um, but then as you get into it and we're immersed, do little things. Don't worry about how much you're going to get from it, but go get the experience doing it. And each one of those stories will give you credibility and add to your portfolio of stories. Great advice. Um, well, again, th- thanks for making time. Appreciated the conversation here today. Yeah, I have too. And, and Jess, I, I, I appreciate the conversation. I appreciate the work you do. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Thanks. And that's the show. Thanks for listening today. Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the Ideation Collective while it's still free. The website, iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co slash childrescue. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. 
Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at The Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.